I want to, um, we're going to come in a second to read uh, from Isaiah 65, which is not quite the final chapter of Isaiah, but it's where we're going to end um, our journey. Um, maybe just to say two things by way of introduction. Um, one is today is the day of Pentecost when, as I, I prayed a moment ago, Christians give thanks for the gift of the Spirit. And maybe the passage that we're going to read this morning is not an obvious Pentecost text. It's not directly about the Spirit. Um, and yet in many ways, I think it is a really good passage to read this morning because the Spirit was at the heart of creation. You remember when the Spirit hovered over the surface of the, the deep and then God said, let there be light and there was light. And the Spirit was not only at the heart of creation, but is also at the heart of new creation. And really the passage we're going to read this morning is about the, the new creation. So keep that in mind maybe as we read. Uh, I'm also going to say one thing, which is kind of my way of trying to get you to stay awake in the heat this morning. So I'm going to say something slightly provocative or surprising, uh, which is that I want to talk a little bit this morning about why I have no desire to spend eternity in heaven. Okay, so that's deliberately designed to, so you pay attention to what I'm going to say. So um, with that in mind, now that you're paying attention, um, let's read together from Isaiah 65. And um, we're going to read from uh, verse 17 of Isaiah 65. And it says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. I'm actually going to pause immediately for a second. Um, there's an interesting thing that I noticed as I've been um, reflecting on this passage. The, the NIV um, translates that first line, see, I will create, which is entirely future. Um, interestingly, most of the other translations translate it more like this. See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. So this is something that has already begun but is also going to be completed in the future. Um, so I'm going to go with that translation, which most of the other translators agree about. And I think that there's something important in that, which we'll come to uh, at the end. So no more interruptions. I'm going to read uh, from verse 17. See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. 
and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You may recognize some words there, echoing words we read earlier in Isaiah about the wolf and the lamb um, lying down together. Um, I think of many, many beautiful passages we've read in Isaiah, this has got to be up there. Uh, one of the best is kept for near near the end. Um, and I want to immediately draw your attention to something about the passage we've just read about the new creation, um, is that the future that is described here is embodied and earthly. Um, this is not a description of another kind of life in another place. This is very much life as we know it, and yet radically transformed, almost beyond recognition. Um, it's not a description of a, a disembodied spiritual life in heaven. Isaiah doesn't give us a vision of the souls of the faithful ascending to the heavens. It's a description of a life with a body on a renewed earth. Um, and so I want to think about this a little bit with you uh, for a few moments. Um, the idea of spending eternity in heaven is very popular. It, it's probably the main way that people talk about the afterlife. Um, that's certainly true in the wider culture, where people have all kinds of strange ideas about people becoming angels and even dogs going over a rainbow bridge or something. I can't quite get my head around it all. There's all kinds of weird and wild ideas in our culture. But even sometimes within the church, we speak repeatedly about heaven as our eternal home and about leaving the earth to go there. Um, and I've been thinking a little bit, I was trying to choose songs for this morning and I discovered um, many of our Christian songs and hymns um, reflect that, that movement away from earth to our home somewhere else. Um, there's a country gospel classic, which my dad used to play all the time, that says, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And a lot of our songs have that flying away kind of movement. Um, the old rugged, rugged cross, beautiful old hymn, um, says, then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. And it's that idea of our home is somewhere up there, somewhere far away. Um, even Charles Wesley, um, who hopefully you know by now, I uh, respect and admire and revere as one of the great hymn writers of the church. But even Wesley sometimes bought into this direction. So Wesley wrote a hymn, and it's maybe not, not commonly sung today. And he, he wrote, Away with our sorrow and fear, we soon shall recover our home. The city of saints shall appear, the day of eternity come from earth. We shall quickly remove and mount to our native abode, the house of our Father above, the palace of angels and God. From earth we shall remove. We're getting out of here. It's I'm a Christian, get me out of here, um, is very much the, uh, the spirit of these songs. Um, and I know it's a little bit surprising, maybe, um, but I want to suggest this morning, it's great poetry and great songwriting, but it's not good biblical theology. Because the Bible consistently teaches that our future hope, our eternal hope, is living in resurrected bodies in a renewed earth. Um, and I could, we could spend a long time looking through Bible passages that reflect that, but just to read a couple. 
Uh, Psalm 37 verse 29 says, The righteous themselves will inherit the earth, and they will reside upon it forever. Um, That, of course, reminds us maybe of Jesus saying in Matthew 5, verse 5, the meek will inherit the earth. Um, Habakkuk 2, reflecting Isaiah 11, says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Um, the, 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 The Bible consistently speaks of our eternal hope in those kind of terms. Maybe most notably of all, Romans 8 talks about creation itself being redeemed and how creation is groaning, waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay and to enter into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Creation is not something that's going to be discarded and left behind. It's going to be transformed and transfigured and renewed and redeemed and liberated. Which maybe makes us wonder, um, why is that idea, I'm going to put up the kind of artwork we often associate with thinking about Um, going to heaven. Um, Why is the flying away to heaven vision so influential and pervasive in Christian culture? Um, I think there's there's maybe a couple of reasons. Um, One reason um, is actually the influence of ideas from outside Christianity. Um, Many of the Greek philosophers, like uh, Plato and his followers, taught that matter is bad. Matter is bad. And therefore, Bodies are bad, souls are good, earth is bad, heaven is good. And so if that's the way you think, then salvation is all about escape from yucky matter uh, into spiritual perfection. And that idea of the immortal soul flying away to a purely spiritual heaven is all through pagan religion. Um, It's essentially a pagan idea rather than a Christian one. Paganism believed in the immortality of the soul. Christians believe in the resurrection of the body, which is a very different message. I think maybe the other reason why that vision is so influential is that, uh, and maybe this one is more understandable, is that sometimes we confuse a temporary waiting place with our eternal hope. Because, and this is really important, it is of course true that those who die now trusting the Lord go immediately to be with God. And and it says in 2 Corinthians, they are away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that is profoundly true and profoundly comforting. Their body is in the grave. Their soul is with God. Their soul is in heaven. But the bit that we, we sometimes miss, I think, is that that is not their final destination. The Christian hope is the resurrection of the body and life forever in a renewed creation. And so those souls who have gone to be with God are waiting for that day when they will be given a renewed body and enter into life in the new creation. That's why the the proper thing, the the full statement to say when someone dies in the faith is rest in peace and rise in glory. That is what we are looking forward to. In Revelation, when you get to the very end of the Bible, um, interestingly, the vision is not, the the direction of travel is not away from earth to heaven. It's not flying away. The movement is actually in the other direction. I looked and I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared 
to meet her husband. And we see at the end of Revelation a marriage of earth and heaven. And God comes to dwell with his people in a renewed physical creation. Um, it's it's a, 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 a something at the heart of biblical theology that I think we need to recover and maybe be a little bit attentive to where it's been lost. Um, why is that so important? Um, I think it's really important because for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it teaches us to value physical life in this world. Um, God has declared his physical creation to be good in Genesis 1. God has declared us as his embodied creatures to be very good. Do you remember that at the uh, back in back in Genesis 1? It wasn't souls that God was talking about. It was embodied creatures. He said it's very good to be a person in a body. Um, we must not despise God's good creation. So we should value life in a body and enjoy it and care for it. And we should value creation and enjoy it and care for it. And we end up in all kinds of trouble when we end up devaluing life in the body and devaluing God's creation. But there's another big reason why I think this is really important. Um, and I think it's this, that it's really difficult to imagine at all or even to desire living forever as a kind of floating soul. Um, as I've talked to people uh, in my life involved in Christian ministry, I've come to the conclusion that many Christians are secretly not sure that they'll enjoy heaven. Because <laughs> um, they're trying really hard to imagine a purely spiritual existence and what that might be like. Uh, something that's entirely unlike our present lives, that's kind of entirely alien. And they're trying to imagine it and they're trying to want that and desire that and long for that. And if you're anything like me, you find it's very difficult. Um, Paul Blackham, um, who's a pastor and theologian in England, uh, writes this. He says, how much more appealing is the Bible's final scene in which God moves house, bringing his dwelling to earth, where he lives with us here, wiping away our tears and seeing to it that everything that makes life bad is done away with. I think that's the vision that's given in Isaiah and then given again even clearer in Revelation. Um, and what that means is that the good things that we enjoy now, you think about all the things that you enjoy about life in a body on this earth. The, the good things that we enjoy now are a clue and a signpost and a foretaste of what's to come. The life to come will be like that, but also unimaginably better. <laughs> And that bit's really important, unimaginably better, because it will be unshadowed by grief or fear or shame or hurt or all the things that um, uh, interfere with and spoil uh, life on this earth. I um, wonder if you ever noticed how often when Jesus describes the life to come, he uses the image of a feast. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? I find that really interesting. He uses, um, he it's a, the, the image of a feast, I think, combines together so many simple pleasures of life in a body on earth, eating good food in the company of good friends. And that's the image that Jesus plants in our minds as we think about the life to come. Um, I was remembering there was a song 
uh, when I was younger by a Christ an American Christian band um, that I think in some ways it maybe took a little bit of poetic license, um, but in some ways I think had better theology than some of the hymns that I quoted a minute ago. Uh, and it said, it was obviously written kind of mainly for young people, but it said there's a great big house with lots and lots of room. There's a great big table with lots and lots of food. There's a great big yard where you can play football. <laughs> and maybe that's the poetic license, but I think the spirit of that is right. The good things that God has given us will be amplified and magnified and increased beyond imagination. Glenn Scrivener uh, likes to point out that in his resurrection appearances, uh, where Jesus already has his new resurrection body and has risen as the first fruits of the new creation, as the New Testament talks about it, um, the things that Jesus does as he meets with his disciples are in many ways very ordinary <laughs> and down to earth. You ever notice that in nearly every resurrection appearance, Jesus eats with his disciples? Um, I think that, that's certainly about proving that he had a physical body, but I think it's also about giving us a glimpse of the life of the age to come. Um, he shares breakfast on the beach with his friends as the sun rises. He's giving us a little glimpse of the life of the age to come. So Glenn Scrivener writes, it's country walks and heartwarming talks, mind-blowing preachers and breakfast on beaches, feasting and family and peace and grace, and Jesus, our battle-scarred brother, face to face. Right? That's what those resurrection appearances stir up in us as we read about them. So with all of that said, I want to come back to the passage we read um, and just talk about a few of the things in it before we finish. Um, maybe what you and I really want to know is, how is the new creation, how is the renewed earth different to our present experience? Um, and there's a lot that we're not told. We're, we're always kind of curious. We'd love to know everything about the life of the world to come. Um, there's a lot that we're not told. Uh, we'd love to know more. But this passage, I think, tells us quite a lot. Um, I wonder, did you notice as we read the, the repetition of words like this? No more and never again and no longer. And the passage talks about, I guess, those things that lie like a shadow over our present life. Um, if you thought for a moment, what, what are the things that shadow our present life? There's so much that's good and beautiful about life in this world, and yet there are shadows that keep coming in and stealing joy and diminishing life and making life difficult on this earth. What are those shadows that lie over our life? And the promise of this passage in Isaiah is that those shadows will be removed forever. No more, never again, no longer. And I just want to name them with you and just walk through with you and name some of those shadows that are mentioned in Isaiah 65. Um, the shadow of sorrow will be removed. You think for a moment about all the sadness in our world, all the tears, all the grief. Can we imagine a world without sorrow? Um, in Revelation, it says, God himself will wipe away every tear. Actually, that's echoing Isaiah 23. Um, you find Revelation echoes Isaiah a lot. Um, and I love, I love how personal and intimate that is. God could just snap his fingers and get rid of all the tears, but he wipes them all away. 
God himself will wipe away every tear. And instead, there'll be abundant joy and overflowing gladness. And I wonder, did you notice, it's been a big theme in Isaiah, but how many mentions of the word joy and rejoicing and gladness and delight were in this passage. We will share in God's own infinite gladness and the joy will not decrease and fade as it always does in this life, but instead will grow stronger as life goes on. Um, Maybe it reminds me of an earlier passage in Isaiah 51 that says, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So the shadow of sorrow will be removed. Never again, no longer, no more. Um, Secondly, the shadow of frustration in work. Wonder have you noticed that in this life, work can often be frustrating and fruitless and can feel futile. And you remember when the story began in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, work was good and delightful, but as a result of sin, it became something cursed and frustrating and often feeling pointless and soul-destroying and back-breaking. But in the new creation, and maybe this is a surprise sometimes to us, we will have work to do, but it will be good work. It will be full of purpose and satisfaction and joy. We will enjoy the work of our hands. That's what it says in Isaiah. Um, And that is described as a blessed life. The curse has been removed and it's a blessed life where work is good and satisfying. Thirdly, the shadow of injustice will be removed. Um, It's said very simply in this passage, no, no one will work hard to build a house that somebody else lives in. Nobody will work hard to grow food that somebody else eats. The injustice of our world, the inequality between our part of the world and many other parts of the world that have so little, the inequality in our society between those who have a lot and those who are struggling right now to feed their families and heat their homes is going to be gone. That shadow of injustice and unfairness will no longer be rich and poor, insider and outsider, the haves and the have-nots. The shadow of injustice is going to be gone. Um, It says in 2 Peter, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth uh, where righteousness dwells. And in the Bible, righteousness and justice are almost synonymous. They go together. It's a a place where justice dwells. Uh, The shadow of injustice is gone. I've forgotten what number I'm on now, but the the shadow of fear will be gone. Um, The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Um, Every creature will live at peace with every other creature. That's about humans, but also about the non-human creation. You think about all the things that we are afraid of, monsters under the bed and things that go bump in the night and things that might happen and things that might come out of uh, the dark and out of the sea and whatever. There'll be no fear of wild animals or natural disaster. No fear of being harmed by anything or anybody. No one will hurt or harm on my holy mountain, says the Lord. A peaceable kingdom without fear. Can you imagine that? Um, The shadow of death will be lifted. Um, Isaiah says there'll be no more premature death, no more unexpected tragedy from sickness or accidents or violence 
Um, you probably noticed as we read, this is one of those points where Isaiah doesn't see the whole story. The Old Testament sees in part and sees in shadow. Uh, the best that Isaiah can imagine is a world where nobody dies before 100. <laughs> Everybody lives to a ripe old age. There's no premature death. When you get on the other side of Jesus, after Jesus has gone through death and conquered death and come out the other side, Revelation says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more death. It's better than just living to a hundred. The shadow of death will be gone. Uh, actually, Isaiah, I do him a disservice. Back in chapter 23, earlier in the book, Isaiah got a glimpse of this and he wrote this. And we didn't read this on the way through, so I had to throw it in here because these are some of my favorite words. And Isaiah, he wrote, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. There's the feast again of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So Isaiah sought. The day was coming when death would be gone, when death would be defeated, um, and there would be life abundant and life everlasting. Um, the last shadow that I notice in this passage is the shadow of distance from God. Um, in many ways, we could say this is the deepest shadow of all. Um, the, the result, uh, the consequence of sin is that distance that human beings experience from their creator. And when the new creation comes, there will be an intimacy between people and God where every barrier will be removed. And the way Isaiah describes it is, even before you speak, God will hear an answer. You don't even need to have a, a back and forth conversation. Even before you've formed the words, you'll have God's answer. There'll be that immediacy of God's presence and of communication with God. The way Revelation describes it, is simply by saying God will come and dwell with his people. He will dwell with his people. And so the shadow of distance from God will be gone. Um, I wonder as we rush through those, we could easily take a week on each of those. Um, can you imagine a world like that? Um, if we speak of it in positive terms, a new world of joy and delight of enjoyable, satisfying work, of just relationships and a just society and just community, of peace between every creature, of abundant, indestructible life that can't end, and of intimacy with God, walking with God like people did in the beginning in the garden. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you desire a world like that? I think we can. Do you find in yourself a longing, a hunger for that kind of world? Um, uh, Barry Webb, who's one of, one of the commentators on Isaiah, um, says it this way, and I find this really helpful. It's really simple. He says, the new world will be history perfected and paradise regained, and it will be full of the modest and simple delights that God always wanted us to have, joy, fullness of life, security, rewarding work, fellowship with God, 
and peace. The things God always wanted us to have, but now in the new creation, they will be there in abundance. Um, let me finish with this. Um, back to that phrase at the beginning that I, I think is significant. Um, I, the prophet says, look, behold, I am creating, God speaking, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The sense is he has begun this good work already and now he will carry it on to completion. Um, the New Testament talks about Jesus being the first fruits of the new creation. It also talks about the spirit in you and I being the first fruits of the new creation. Um, and maybe it's a good place to finish because today is Pentecost. Uh, we said at the beginning, the spirit is at the heart of both creation and new creation. Um, and maybe we can say this, that as God's spirit works in our lives and in our world, we will, we will see these things starting to happen. The things that we just talked about, all of those things that are going to char characterize the new world, we'll see these things starting to happen. And whenever we see these things start to happen, that's a first installment of what's to come. It's a little taste of what's to come. And we should expect to see miracles of new creation. We should expect to see signs of that future kingdom invading our present. The new creation has begun with the resurrection of Jesus. And it means that you and I, tomorrow, today, can work and pray towards these things, towards those things that we put on the, the, the screen. We live towards that vision with real hope. And yet we also know the work won't be completed until the king appears. Uh, that day when Jesus appears and brings heaven and earth together and makes all things new and establishes that joyful kingdom which will never end. So we live now in light of that hope. Uh, we walk in light of that future hope. But we look forward to the day when Jesus will appear and all of these things will come to be. Um, I'm going I'm to finish. I, I was very hard on the song, the hymn writers earlier on. So I'm going to finish by quoting a hymn which I think gets this hope right. Um, and it was written by Isaac Watts over 300 years ago. Um, and I think it expresses the hope of what God is doing now in our world as the gospel goes into the world and the spirit works in the world, but also that sense of what will one day be. Um, and this is what Isaac Watts, I'm not going to sing it to you, but this is what Isaac Watts wrote. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose his chains. The weary find eternal rest and all the sons of want are blessed. Where he displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Let every creature rise and bring blessing and honour to our king. Angels descend with songs again and earth repeat the loud amen. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing a song of response.
Um, Father, I want to thank you that you have given us in your word here in Isaiah and in many other places uh, this astonishing hope of a world made new, of a world unshadowed by sin and death and fear and all these other things. And Father, there is there's something in our hearts that um, yearns and longs for that day. Uh, because you've given us the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we long for that new world to come. Because we look at our world right now and there is too much sorrow and too much death and too much fear and too many people living far away from God. And we long for that day when you will come and remove every shadow and defeat every enemy and make all things new. And our hearts say, come, Lord Jesus. Our hearts say, come, Holy Spirit. We want to pray that even now, as we wait for Jesus to return, we want to pray that even today, even tomorrow, even this week, we would see in our lives miracles of new creation, that we would see signs of your joyful kingdom breaking in to the places where we live, on the places where we work, on the places uh, where we spend time with friends and family and neighbours. Um, Father, we pray for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And even as we pray for those beginnings to happen among us, again, we look forward to the day when the king will return and Jesus will reign from shore to shore. Um, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.